Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Please be seated. God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden. And as we consider this and we consider the state of the church uh, in our time, one of the questions that comes up is how did this happen? So I'm hoping that we can consider those things. First of which is that God and sinners see things differently. What man sees in this passage are beautiful daughters and the children who are giants, mighty men of renown. But what God sees is that the wickedness of man is great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. So the question is, what happened to grace? How is it that we get to verse 8 and Noah is the only man of grace left on earth? What happened to the godly? What happened to the seed of the woman from whose land the head crushing seed would come? Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see that enmity from Cain's side in chapter 4 when he murdered his brother. And we see something in Cain's family that matches up with the mighty man in Genesis 6. Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, takes two wives, perverting marriage. And their family produces those with whom men would be impressed. Jabel, the father of dwelling in tents and keeping livestock. It's verse 20. Jubal, the father of all who played the harp and flute. Jubal Cain, 
an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And then Nema, a daughter whose very name means lovely. Very impressive. Sounds like a very impressive homeschooling family. Lamech was something of a mighty man. But we know that's not what God looks at. It's the line that begins in chapter 4, verse 25 and 26 that call on the name of Yahweh. That's the line that is recorded in chapter 5. The line that call on the name of Yahweh. Verse 26. The line that is looking for the hope of Yahweh, ending the curse. So how is it that this line of grace disappears? How is it that by chapter 6, verse 8, the world is down to just Noah as a man of grace? How does the earth come to be corrupt and filled with violence? The answer of Genesis 6, 1 and 2 is poorly chosen marriages. Men, that's Adam, verse 1, begin to multiply on the face of the earth. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God, those who called upon the name of Yahweh and walked with God and hoped in the gospel, had options now. Take wives from within the family of faith. Take wives from among those who call upon Yahweh like you do. Take wives from among those who walk with God like you do. Take wives from among those who hope in the gospel like you do. Or might they consider these other daughters? And you can see in the text that they did. They must have been proud of the results in verse 4. But God was grieved with the results. How did they end up making such bad marriages? First, I'd like to offer choosing from the wrong pool. These daughters of men, from Adam, not just from the wrong land, but specifically the land of those who are still in their flesh. Not just the wrong family, but those who are from the first Adam in whom we sinned and died. Not the last Adam in whom alone there is real spiritual life. This is more than a label. It is a living reality in the heart and an observable reality in the life. Priorities, habits, attitude, conduct. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? God through scripture gives us some of the requirements for a spouse, for choosing a spouse. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. By contrast, Proverbs 15, or 15, 
Proverbs 21.19 says, Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 15.22 Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. We're going to hear more about our counselors here in a minute. Ephesians 5.32 Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to talk a little bit about choosing mates from outside of the household of faith. Most of you know that I've been an elder in this church from the time when I was uh, probably too young to be an elder. I've grown into that now. Um, and over the years, I have witnessed uh, a number of our young people in this church and from outside the venue who, not being cautious as to who they were seeking for a mate, would wind up being compelled, drawn to someone outside of the visible church. So as a caution, I would like to relate to you that over the years, I have never seen one of these unions bring the, the non-Christian into the household of faith. Without exception, I have seen the Christian leave the household of faith, the covenant child. That weighs heavily on my heart. And so I would like to present to you, you unmarried young ones, to be very cautious when you are allowing yourself to become friendly with someone, especially when you recognize that they are not from the visible church. So the next thing is choosing by the wrong criteria. Saul. What the saw in verse 2 is set directly over against what God saw in verse 5. They chose by the attraction of the eye, not the quality of godliness. Those who looked good, not those that were looking to be good wives to help them be godly. In Malachi 2.14 says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? That confirms Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, surely you shall die. The seed of the serpent, not those who wish to give their lives to raising godly seed. Going back to Malachi 2.15 now. Having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of the Jew. That confirms Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth as one of the great purposes of marriage. So the next thing I'd like to submit is choosing by the wrong procedure. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. They just chose wives for themselves. They apparently weren't guided at all. This left them completely vulnerable to their own foolishness. Note that 2.24 implies that a man will have his father and his mother as counselors. I just uh, spoke of that a moment ago. And that they will be his counselors, helpers, until he takes a godly wife to be his helpmate. He might move houses, but he doesn't leave himself without help and counsel. Just choosing and then expecting or asking blessing later misses out on the wisdom, maturity, and clarity that God provides by means of godly parents. A man should first be guided by God's word. This is this also includes his elders, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And if he is then, that word will teach him to be to let his parents counsel, instruct, guide, and correct him. And godly parents will, of course, reinforce what the word says. When there's likely to be intense emotion involved, we need these helps even more. Which is why you must be exceedingly careful having friendships with opposite sex or frivolous relationships with people that you know cannot lead to marriage. So who or what are we looking for in a godly spouse? <clears throat> Someone who calls upon the name of the Lord, having a life centered around worship day by day in the home and all day on the Lord's day. If they marry someone who talks about those things but is not devoted to them from the heart, you shouldn't be surprised when they end up being the way that this sort of worship life vanishes from their breast and their mind. Someone who walks with God so that in all work and play and everything is governed by God's law and serving God's glory. If they marry those who just obey themselves and serve themselves and enjoy themselves, they shouldn't be surprised when they end up being the way that obeying and serving and enjoying God vanishes from their branch of the family line. Someone who hopes in God's gospel promise to bring an end to the curse. If they marry someone who isn't really living out of that hope, but hope more 
that they might be successful in this life. They shouldn't be surprised when they end up being the way that living for the hope of the gospel vanishes from their branch family life. And all it takes for the land to be full of corruption and the people of grace to become nearly extinct is just a couple generations worth of such marriage choices. Our pastor has had a, um, a quote for some time. We've all heard it. And I asked him if he would uh, help me out with this. So he uh, pinned this for me. You're not supposed to figure out if he's the one or she's the one. You're responsible for, for God to choose wisely and righteously in dependence upon him and his means and guided by his word. But you actually can't know who the one is any more than you can know that you will not die before the wedding. Pastor James says, you know he's the one or you know she's the one when the two of you have said I do. Someone might be an excellent choice to marry, the best choice, but until God's providence carries you through to that moment, you simply do not know it. And someone might be very poor choice, but even by the poor choice, if you said I do, then they are still the one. Our poor choices do not somehow nullify God's providence. So each husband and each wife must be sure that providence has selected his spouse specifically for him. Just as much as Adam was made to see that there was no other creature in all of this world appointed to be his wife but the woman. Once you say, I do, that's the one. Period. Any imagining of others or comparison to others becomes adulterous. Any imaging or desiring to get out of the marriage becomes abandonment. We can take comfort from the fact that the love that gave me Christ gave me my spouse in goodness and wisdom. We can draw strength from the fact that the God who gave me this assignment will carry me through by His grace. Each marriage covenant into which the husband and wife have duly entered has God Himself as the principal party of that covenant. A sweet member of this congregation upon learning of my sermon topic said to me, I am glad you are speaking on this subject because marriage can be hard. And I agree with that. I've been married for 37 plus years. It's the best time of my whole life. And I have to say, most of y'all know I'm not a scholar. My first 12 years in school still seems like the longest segment of my life. But uh, each of you know Dawn and what a wonderful uh, Proverbs 31 wife she is. So, a lot of times marriage tends to get romanticized. But actually there are seasons. Sometimes we have to be reminded of our covenant and determined to love our spouse through it. Do not go into marriage thinking it will always be easy. 
but it always will be worth it. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for her. In verses 28 and 29, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. In other words, living in such a way as to demonstrate Titus 2, Wives be husband lovers and children lovers, and husbands be wife lovers and children lovers. So in conclusion, I would like to recommend this book. We have it over in the uh, next door, Living in a Godly Marriage. It's a very good book that Joel Beakey uh, produced. And I'm going to uh, conclude with an excerpt from it. As God instituted, instituted marriage and made it honorable, so God also blessed marriage and made it beneficial. Hence, the benefits of marriage coincide with the purpose of marriage. God instituted marriage with particular goals in mind, but also with a particular good in mind, and our enjoyment of the latter depends on our pursuit of the former. I'm going to repeat that. God instituted marriage with particular goals in mind, but also with a particular good in mind, and our enjoyment of the latter depends on our pursuit of the former. If we abuse marriage contrary to his purposes, then it can render little benefit to us, since God has not promised to bless our abuse. Only when we acknowledge the purposes for which he appointed marriage, and seek his help that our marriage may serve those ends, can we look to him for the experience of them? Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this opening of the word. Pray, Father, that uh, anything that might have been said that is not congruent with your word would be quickly lost. But those truths that uh, you have brought forth to us, that we would meditate and ruminate upon them, that we may uh, seek to uh, serve you in all things, and especially in our marriages. Thank you for all of these things, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.